Welcome to episode number two from IBS Patient. I'm Jeffrey Roberts, and this is IBS Chat. I was diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome at age 16, and I've lived with IBS for over 40 years. I'm the IBS expert and founder of the IBS Patient Support Group website and social media platforms and creator of World IBS Day held every April 19th. It's my mission to educate people living with irritable bowel syndrome and to raise awareness about research and treatment options and what it's like to live with IBS. The IBS Patient Support Group is a community to inform and support irritable bowel syndrome sufferers and can be reached at ibspatient.org. Supporting IBS patients is something that I think of every day because the quality of life of an IBS patient and those that support them is very important to me. In this episode, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Kate Scarlatta at Digestive Disease Week in San Diego. Kate Scarlatta is a Boston-based registered and licensed dietitian, as well as a New York Times bestselling author with 25 plus years of experience. Kate specializes in the low FODMAP diet and digestive health conditions, including IBS and small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, also known as SIBO. Kate and I will be talking about food and the FODMAP diet, as well as Kate's very meaningful I Believe in Your Story initiative. I'm here with Kate Scarlatta, and I have a number of questions that I'd like to ask you today. So you've had symptoms that are IBS-like for some time. How have you managed your symptoms? Yeah, so um, just a little background story. Um, when I was pregnant with my middle son um, in 1994, I developed a strangulated intestine and had about six to eight feet of my small intestinal uh, intestine removed, and uh, including my ileocecal valve, and that um, increased my risk for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which um, is another condition similar to IBS. In fact, the symptoms really mimic IBS symptoms. Um, And so I've experienced a couple uh, episodes of SIBO, um, and I manage them primarily with modifying um, FODMAPs in my diet. I don't have to be um, highly restrictive with FODMAPs, primarily just onions are a major trigger and large quantities of wheat at one time would be a problem. Um, But overall, I'm I'm pretty liberal with my diet, um, but, you know, I'm careful. That's a great segue to actually my next question because you are really one of the top experts um, with the, respect to the low FODMAP diet. Can you briefly explain what the low FODMAP diet is and what's important? What should people know about that? Yeah, so the low FODMAP diet is a three-phase nutritional approach um, to managing symptoms of IBS. And it works in about 50 to 70% of patients with IBS. So not everyone will um, receive benefit, symptom management benefit from the low FODMAP diet, but a good portion will. Um, So the three phases include the elimination phase, which is about two, two to six weeks where high FODMAP foods are restricted. And then that's followed by the reintroduction phase. And that's when um, the individual will systematically reintroduce high FODMAP foods to really learn and identify their personal triggers. And then that, that is followed up with the personalization phase where they can add back foods that they tolerate so that they're consuming the most liberal, um, modified FODMAP diet possible. Um, it's important to know that the diet um, is a little nuanced to say the least and so can really be um, uh, undertaken with greater ease when you work with a dietitian that is knowledgeable in the diet. Um, I think it's important that individuals with IBS also realize that um, 
It's often one part of the treatment option. So diet is something that about 84% of IBS patients feel that food triggers symptoms, and many individuals with IBS are interested in a nutritional approach. But I think, you know, with seeing thousands of patients working with um, patients with IBS and the low FODMAP diet over the years, um, I would say the bulk of them, it has been part of their treatment, but not complete. So they might benefit also from a bowel regimen, physical therapy. There's other adjunctive therapies that also benefit. So I think it's important to know that the diet can help many people, but it might be part of the treatment plan, not the sole treatment plan. That it is a three-phase diet approach that you should not be on the elimination phase indefinitely. Um, the other important part of it is that you should be uh, working with your physician to make sure that it's suitable for you that's and a, that you have IBS. That's a really good point. And another really important point is that you know, although the low FODMAP diet is not a gluten-free diet, it does restrict um, gluten sources, wheat, barley, and rye, so it reduces gluten. And if you haven't been screened for celiac disease, which is an immune-mediated um, condition where gluten is toxic to the, the GI tract, we really do encourage people to get tested for celiac prior to starting the low FODMAP diet because this reduction in gluten would potentially make the screening test for celiac not very ac uh, accurate. Oh, that's interesting, actually, to do it before. I hadn't heard that. That's, that's a very good point. Yep, testing first before you change the diet. Right, okay. You mentioned um, gastroenterologist. With a low fat diet, you recommend obviously working with a dietitian in order to manage it, but if somebody wants to attempt the low FODMAP diet, should they be working with their doctor ahead of the dietitian to make sure that the, the doctor feels that it might be appropriate for them versus some other treatment option or in conjunction with some other treatment option? You know, that's a great question. I think it's really important for patients to be provided sort of the slew of treatment options that are out there so that they can be part of the decision making. Maybe they don't want to do a diet. Maybe that seems highly restrictive to them. Maybe they had no idea that gut-directed hypnotherapy could help them and that there's clinical hypnotherapists out there. Maybe they didn't know that there are uh, GI psychologists that actually have um, a number of treatments like cognitive behavioral therapy that could be helpful for them. So I think what I would really like to see is that IBS patients are provided a slew of treatment options and that they can work with their GI doctor first and foremost to decide which treatment option they're most uh, vested in trying. They should be part of the decision process. We should not, as practitioners, make that decision for them. Um, so yes, they should be working with their doctor and hopefully really provided a nice, rounded, options of treatments so that they can decide which one they'd like to try. It's interesting, the low FODMAP diet, I'm working with gastroenterologists because they're all also very, very familiar with this. I was with uh, Dr. Che years ago when he uh, introduced Dr. Gibson and then the other and the team from Monash University in Australia, and he had a real glee in his eye uh, when he was talking about food because patients had been for years talking about food is bringing on symptoms. Absolutely. And the, and the gastroenterologist didn't have any data. 
Right. And so I think what's important is the low FODMAP diet is actually been validated. Right. Uh, it is an actual treatment option, much like any other treatment option. So it's a very good point that you raised in terms mm. of let's look at all the treatment options because this is one of them as well. Absolutely. And to your point, I think for me, you know, patients in general kept saying diet, diet, it's bothering me. And it was kind of poo-pooed and not really acknowledged. And it's very validating for patients to say, I knew it was my diet and to do a diet therapy and it works for them. It's like, who knows your body better than you? No one. So it's just, I think that's what is really nice for me to see that, you know, yes, this is bothering me, this is bothering me, and then finally we have data and patients are really being heard and offered a solution. So it must be very rewarding then, working with patients where you've actually found some of these triggers or the balance of the right amount of food that they can um, take in terms of FODMAP-related that could be their trigger points. And right. now that's been validated and they must be feeling you know, a lot better. Totally. And I would say, you know, my clinical practice has been, I feel like um, it's, it, it's the majority of these individuals have been suffering for often 10 years or more. They have tried a number of different uh, treatment remedies with really no great success. And then when we can do this nutritional approach with them, it's just, um, they're, they're dancing in my office. They're just ecstatic. They knew it was diet. We modified their diet and, and they're good to go. It, it is, to your point, beyond, I never thought as a dietitian I would be working in the digestive health field. I, I, I really didn't know where I would end up, but um, I couldn't really pick a better place for me. It's been um, extraordinarily rewarding work. Um, and and I'm grateful that I'm that I'm in it. That's very very encouraging to yeah. hear both for yourself and right. for your patients. So last question I have for you is: You've been such a, an incredible inspiration and a great advocate for people with IBS. You started an "I Believe in Your Story" campaign to raise awareness about IBS. Why did you start that campaign, and how can people who are interested get involved in that? So I, I started the campaign because I felt in general that IBS patients really truly weren't being heard or taken seriously. And, and I heard it repeatedly, patient after patient after patient. And what is more validating than to be heard and believed? It's extraordinarily validating. And to be honest, I feel like that's part of the healing process, right? To say like, I have this problem and someone says, yes, you do, and we're, I'm here to help you get better. Instead of saying, it's just IBS, or you're too stressed, or, and not that stress isn't a component of IBS, I, it can certainly exacerbate symptoms. But I feel like patients, there was a time where patients were really undermined and not taken seriously. And that really bothered me. And so I wanted to kind of give them a virtual hug and, and just say, I believe in your story and it's real. And I, and I want um, others to understand that this is a real problem and that the symptoms are miserable to live with and we need to change this. And the funding is poor. It's 11 cents or so per IBS patient for NIH funding. That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So. Um, so I said, what the heck, why not me? 
why well, I'll just I'm just gonna throw this out there into the universe and start this campaign and um, I picked two uh, initially these are the two um, institutions that I selected was Cedar Sinai and Mark Pimentel's work because I he's a maverick in understanding SIBO um, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and I loved Bill Che's work because he was really connecting the dots and really excited about the role of diet in um, in managing symptoms and I love I love that approach as well they're both mavericks and for IBS patients I believe so um, I've uh, channeled any fundraising and you can donate right through my site which is katescarlotta.com click on the I believe in your story link and just click on donate and the money goes straight to either Cedars, Mark's group or Bill's, that's one way. We do sell I believe in your story uh, pins on my uh, website and 100% um, of the proceeds go to research um, funding so that's one another option. Um, and then every year we do different things. This year we did a charity spin ride and we had a blast. It was so fun and we're going to do it on World IBS Day next year. Oh, that's, so we're that's... going to do it in New York and we really hope to get a lot of people down to New York City to do um, probably have a couple different spin studios and really fill them up. Um, it was a really an incredible day um, at the charity spin ride. So, well, also yeah. your video that you had put together yes. for this year's campaign was yes. really, really wonderful to see. So many healthcare professionals and doctors uh, and others who actually said that on camera. Right. And so I, I really encourage you all include that as a link right. in the description of this podcast. Um, so people can see that because it absolutely because as you said it's really important for one to be people to be validated for their illness and also to realize that it is it can be a very miserable life existence with IBS and it's wonderful that you've stepped up there's lots of people now who are doing the same thing because everybody's recognizing the challenges that people it's, with IBS have definitely thank you also for mentioning World IBS Day yeah uh, so you know this was the first year and I so I appreciated your support definitely. with that we got it out there, it's it's there. I mean, there are other world days and right. I believe that IBS also demands its own Absolutely. day as well. And Absolutely. so it's something that we're going to um, continue to pursue. And so I appreciate you doing your spin yeah. next year on that day as Abs an event. Absolutely, yep. So thank you. So uh, thank you for the time now for you to explain, you know, low FODMAP and the work that you've done and, you know, the great advocacy work that you continue to do. I mean, DDW is such a great place to, for us to learn different uh, treatment options, what's coming down the pipe, and that we can help patients. Definitely.